0: Good morning again and welcome. And I do apologize that it's so warm in here. Um, normally the air will come on for us. It's not, it's not coming on this morning. I don't know if they've made a change to the program, but we'll get that addressed this week. So please bear with us. But good morning and happy Easter. To those of you who are all regulars here at South Baton Rouge, it's good to see you all again. Those of you who may be visiting with us or are continuing to visit with us, we want to say that we're glad that you're here and we hope that you'll come and worship with us again as often as you're able. Now, while there's a very real sense in which every Sunday for a believer is Easter Sunday, in that the Lord's Day is always a celebration of Christ's death and resurrection. It's uh, Nevertheless, it's still good and right that we set aside a particular day each year on which we remember, the, in particular, this historical event that took place, the resurrection. That's not just a spiritual truth for us, it's a historical fact. The thing that we celebrate here, Christ's death and resurrection, it actually happened in space and time. Which is vitally important, since as the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians fifteen, seventeen, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. And you are still in your sins. Easter Sunday is a celebration of the truth that in fact Christ has been raised, and therefore our faith is not futile. And those who belong to Him are no longer in their sins. That is, we are no longer burdened with the penalty of our sins. And we are reconciled to God. That's what the Easter message is about. And this morning we want to look at that message in particular, at some of the Old Testament background, by revisiting Genesis 22, verses 1 to 19. Now, these verses, as some of you will know, are a smaller part of a larger portion of the book of Genesis, which starts in chapter 12 and deals with the life of Abraham. And while this reading in particular may not actually be a familiar one to you in terms of Easter or Easter readings, it's one that actually remains as part of the traditional readings in the uh, common lectionary, which uh, many of you may be familiar with from your own upbringing. Uh, And it's been read for many years as part of the church's uh, Bible readings at this time of the year. And so that's sort of the introduction. Before we actually look at the passage, let's pray for our time together. Let's pray. Father in heaven, please hear us now as we... uh, Plead for you to come and speak to us in and through these words that you have authored and preserved. Make them clear to us, and with that, make the implications of it clear to us. And then, Father, follow us home from this time with these truths. Uh, Put them into our hearts and minds in a way that uh, is permanent, that Works itself out throughout the week and beyond as these uh, deep, deep truths of our faith uh, take hold of us, take root. We look forward to the fruit that you're going to produce from this, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, in Genesis 22, in this amazing and in some ways bizarre account, ...which we're about to read, we find ourselves really at the high point of Abraham's story. And it is an amazing story. Abraham's a fascinating character who at times uh, has shown great faithfulness, great trust in God. Other times he's been very unfaithful, faithless in his responses. And he would not hesitate at different times of his life to deceive or manipulate people in order to protect his own interests. Nevertheless, and in spite of Abraham's ability to still misbehave and to evidence seasons of great doubt and faithlessness, he certainly grew and he changed over the course of his life such that there really is no question that the Abraham of Genesis 22 is a very different man from the one we first meet when his story begins. To be sure, and as I've already indicated, Abraham was not a perfect man, but he definitely grew and he changed for the better. His many trials and troubles used by God were used by God to mature him and in ways that people uh, maybe not might not have thought would be a sign of maturity, but they actually were. Abraham's growth didn't result in a kind of maturity that made him uh, more independent as a person. It didn't cause him to be less and less aware of his need of God's grace and sort of more and more likely just to stand on his own two feet. On the contrary, as Abraham went along, he demonstrated a growing sense of dependence upon God, a greater willingness to rely on God to be faithful to his promises. And trusting God to fulfill his promises meant that Abraham was increasingly more willing to make decisions, and that reflected that trust. He was uh, more frequently willing to follow the path of obedience rather than resorting to his own cleverness or relying upon his own ability to bring about by human manipulation the things that God had promised to bring about in his own way and his own time. So just to be clear... If you read right through the story of Abraham, by the time you get to the end of Genesis 21, right on the doorstep of Genesis 22, you find a different man than the one you first read about in chapter 12. You find a maturing, settled, much steadier Abraham. You find a man who'd finally received a long-promised and long-awaited son. You find a man who'd now settled in the land of promise was worshipping the Lord again in peace with no threats from without and no threats from within. Everything was just right. At the end of chapter 21, all systems for Abraham were go. For a moment. But then something happened. And as it turned out, there was still one threat to be dealt with. There was still one trial that lay before Abraham, and he did not see it coming. It came to him out of the clear blue sky, from what to him had to have been the most unbelievable and unlikely source of all. It was a threat that came from God himself. Genesis 22, <clears throat> 1-2. Good morning to you, God. I mean, this must have caught Abraham completely off guard. It's kind of like, kind of like, one of those suspense movies where you follow this hero through this series of dangers and adventures, and then right at the end, when you think the crisis is over, and the hero's, uh, uh, right at, when you think everything's going to work out, one of the hero's companions. ...that you thought was with him all along, suddenly turns on him and threatens to undo everything. And the hero doesn't expect it and gets completely blindsided. That's what happens with Abraham here. It's not exactly like that, but it's sort of like that. The God who'd been promising this child for years... ...the God who went to great lengths to make sure that the child was protected and ensured its arrival that same God now issues this bizarre and unthinkable command that Abraham is now to take this child to a designated spot and offer him up as a human sacrifice. Not just a human sacrifice, which is bad enough, but a child sacrifice. Surely this has to be the biggest challenge of Abraham's life. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, laid it on Isaac his son. He took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, he said, here am I, my son. He said, behold the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. Now, what is at least as amazing as this command that God issues is the response that Abraham makes to the whole thing. I mean, with a calmness and an acceptance that almost defies belief, Abraham responds to God's instructions seemingly without even flinching. There's no indication of any response or reaction whatsoever other than his immediately gathering Together the people and the supplies that he's going to need to make this journey to the place where he's going to carry out these macabre instructions. And that, frankly, is mind-blowing. Could you have done that? I mean, think about that. This is the same Abraham, who when God announced that he, what he was going to do with Sodom and Gomorrah, back in chapter 18, and made this announcement to a bunch of absolute strangers, uh... With the exception of Lot, when when that happened, what did Abraham do in that situation? Well, Abraham bargained with God in order to see God's mercy toward these unspeakably wicked people. But now, when God's command involves his killing his own flesh and blood, this son he's waited for for 25 years, on this matter, Abraham is silent. Seriously? Seriously? He doesn't bargain, he doesn't say a word, he simply receives this breathtaking command from God and in response grabs his son and some others and he heads off to carry out God's will. Now it seems clear from the passage that Abraham has not shared the complete purpose of this journey with his son or with his servants, at least not yet. And it seems doubtful that he would have shared this with Sarah. But I believe his purpose in doing so was not to deceive, as he'd done in the past, nor was it to avoid carrying out God's will, but simply to keep his son, I think, from bearing the burden of what had to be done any longer than absolutely necessary. I don't think he wanted his son thinking about this for three days. I think this is a compassionate silence on his part. But there's more. To make this challenge even greater, not only has God commanded Abraham to carry out this heartbreaking task, but he sends him to a place that's going to take three days to get to. In other words, he's got three whole days to think about this thing. Three days to grieve in silence about what was going to happen. Two nights to lay in his bed and stare at the stars of promise and perhaps wonder how and why on earth God would have him do this crazy difficult thing. Surely these had to be the most difficult days of his life. And yet it needs to be said that as difficult as these things were, it seems clear from Scripture that whatever Abraham felt, he did not wonder and grieve as one who was completely without faith or hope. And the reason we know this is simply because we have the New Testament's own infallible commentary on this event in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verses 17 to 19, which reads, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. That's what the writer of Hebrews is telling us. What's he saying? He's saying that as Abraham was walking through this trial, he did so as a man who was firmly uh, convinced of two undeniable and humanly speaking contradictory realities. Humanly speaking. Humanly speaking. On the one hand, he knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that God had promised that through his son Isaac, descendants would come. On the other hand, he also knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that God had commanded him to take this same son and offer him up as a sacrifice. He didn't know why all this is happening, but he could not deny the reality of either one of those truths. And so he did the only thing a man of faith could do in that situation. He obeyed God. And he concluded that since God was always true to his promises, that if in fact he did end up killing his own son, then somehow, some way, God would bring that same son back to life. Even though he had never seen such a thing or heard of such a thing. Even though that kind of thinking was completely outside the box. That's the only place he could go. But it tells you something, doesn't it? It tells us something about the character of Abraham's faith at this point in his life. I mean, that's some kind of faith. This is a believing what cannot be seen kind of faith. A believing what had never been seen kind of faith. This is sheer faith. This is all your eggs in one basket, no pun intended, all your eggs in one basket sort of faith. Faith with no backup plan. Faith with no safety net. And it is this insight from the writer of Hebrews that helps us understand more fully the response that Abraham gave when his son quite astutely asked, where is the sacrificial animal, dad? After three days, they got to the appropriate site, prepared to set out to make the sacrifice, just Abraham and his son. They had the wood, they had fire, but they had no lamb, no ram. They had nothing suitable for making a sacrifice. And to his son's question, Abraham somewhat cryptically responded that God would provide a lamb. What was Abraham thinking? Well, when you take into account what Abraham said at the time, and you combine that with this later insight from Hebrews, which we just seen, it seems... That as Abraham headed into this situation, he was counting on one of two things happening. Either God would provide a substitute in place of his son, or if not, he believed God would actually have him go through with it and that he would bring him back to life. That or something like it must have been what was going through his mind. That's where the evidence points at least, and that's pretty amazing stuff. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you've obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they rose and went together to Beersheba and Abraham lived at Beersheba. We noted previously the amazingly resolute manner in which Abraham accepted God's instructions to sacrifice his son. And here we see the description of Isaac's response, which is similar in nature. We hear of no shouting, no struggle, no additional questions, no pleading... It's possible that some of these things may have occurred, but I think it's notable, and I think it's on purpose. But we get no description. I think likely it didn't happen. Why? Well, perhaps he was stunned into silence. Perhaps his father had assured him that whatever happened, he'd be all right in the end. We can't say for sure, but the one thing we know is that the scene that is portrayed here is one of resolute absolute acceptance of the will of god without fighting without resistance without hesitation the significance of which we'll see in a moment with the son bound and placed on the altar abraham raises the knife and he prepares to carry out the sacrifice when at the last moment as he's about to strike the death blow at that point god intervenes stopping abraham And instead points him to a substitute that had been provided. A ram had appeared seemingly out of nowhere, gotten itself tangled up in some brush. And Abraham, no doubt with immense joy and relief, goes and retrieves this ram. And then together with his son, completes the sacrifice that they came to make. And the text tells us at this point that the reason why God prevents Abraham from going through the sacrifice as originally commanded was because he now knew that Abraham feared God. Now this phrase, now I know, is not saying that God is in this moment realizing something that he hadn't previously grasped. God's not gaining new information here. This is, as one scholar puts it, it's an anthropomorphism. It's a language which depicts God as thinking or acting from within a very human perspective in order to better communicate a particular truth. Of course, God knew before any of this happened what was in Abraham's heart. But God said what he did because Abraham's faith was, in a sense, incomplete until it had been demonstrated by actions which proceeded from that real faith. In other words... It was not enough that Abraham might have faith in some kind of abstract sense. It needed to be seen. It needed to be worked out in a concrete way. Not so much for God's sake as for Abraham's sake. And for ours, actually. See, Moses, in recording these events in this way, has preserved for all time the truth of this crucial connection that exists between faith and obedience. A reality that's highlighted much later in the book of James when he writes, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. And so again, it was not until Abraham's faith was realized in the extreme act of obedience that it was fully known or revealed for the genuine faith that it really was. Now you may wonder, was it really necessary for God to go through all this? I mean, if he knew I mean, could this whole event been avoided? Perhaps we could have gotten to the end of the previous chapter, chapter 21, and instead of this whole account of the sacrifice, it might have been one simple statement made. And because God knew Abraham's heart, that he would be faithful to even the most extreme command, then he was pleased with him and he lived happily ever after. Or something like that. But if God had done something like that, we would have missed out on this real-life picture of what faith and sacrifice and obedience are about. If God had done things in the silly way that I just suggested, then we might well have understood the connection between faith and works. Uh, we might sorry, we might well have misunderstood the connection between faith and works that so clearly depicted here. We could have missed out on this great portrait of a father's love for his son being superseded only by his greater faith and trust in God. We would have missed out on this demonstration of the nature of substitutionary sacrifice in a way that now is almost impossible to forget because of this story. We would have missed out on all those things that now and for all time will stand as pointers to the connectedness and the purpose and unity between what God was doing in the Old Testament and what he did in the New Testament through Jesus. So God, in his great wisdom, chose not to give us merely abstract declarations about Abraham's faith, but instead through his providential purposes, chose to show that faith in action. And now that Abraham's faith has been proven by his extreme obedience, God assures Abraham once again of the blessings that he's already sovereignly committed himself to bestowing upon Abraham and his descendants. And for his part, Abraham responds to all this by memorializing the occasion, giving the place uh, where these events occurred the name, The Lord will provide, a name which actually spoke more truly than even Abraham knew. Why? Because the place where they were, on a mountain, the land of Moriah, was, as a number of scholars have pointed out, to be the future site of the temple in which the sacrifices would take place, and by which the people of God for decades to come would also see God's provision for them in and through the Old Testament sacrificial system. You know, when a, uh, when a writer puts together a novel or a play, there is typically a certain end or conclusion toward which he or she is working. And because he or she is trying to move the story toward this particular end, there will be any number of events and signs and indicators along the way which point the reader toward that conclusion Even if these signs and clues are not always fully appreciated until the end. However, when you actually do get to the end and you look back across what has happened. All of those things take on a much deeper significance looking back across than they did initially in very many ways. This is precisely what happens and what ought to happen. We look at Genesis 22 in the light of Jesus's death and resurrection we read this Genesis account through the lens of the gospel, we can see all sorts of things here that anticipate what God was planning to do later on in and through the events which we celebrate today as Easter. As we look at the characters of Abraham and of Isaac, and even look at the ram that is eventually sacrificed in the story, but if we look at all these things, we have this conflation of images as all three of these entities point beyond themselves To other realities that we find in the account of Christ's death. Did you see them all? As we read through? Because when you start to tally them up. They're pretty staggering actually verse 1 and 2, God commands Abraham to go and sacrifice his son, whom he loves. We get to the New Testament, we hear the echo of that command in a number of places, including Luke 14:26, which says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. What was Jesus saying? He was saying that love for him supersedes the love that we have even for our own flesh and blood. The very thing that Abraham demonstrated, indeed the very thing that God demonstrated, when because of his commitment to his own holiness and justice and merciful purposes, he willingly gave up his son. When we see the stark and sheer resolution of Abraham to carry out God's will, whatever that might mean for him, we see the echo of that in Jesus. The seed of the woman, the son of Abraham, when he set his face resolutely to go to Jerusalem and endure God's will for him in that place, whatever that might mean. We see this traveling party arrive, the designated place, and we see Abraham, in verse 6, take the wood to be used for the sacrifice, place it on his son Isaac's back. We see here the anticipation of the time when Jesus, the son of God, would take a wooden cross on his back to be used in his own sacrifice, We hear the words of Abraham in verse 8 saying that God will provide a lamb. We see there the anticipation of Jesus, described by John the Baptist as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And who, as the writer of Hebrews puts it, is the one final all-sufficient sacrifice that was acceptable to the Father. When we see Isaac bound and laid on the altar with no word of protest or resistance, we see the anticipation of the prophecy concerning Jesus in Isaiah 53, which reads, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. When we see Abraham in verse 10 raise his hand to slay his own son, We see the anticipation of the time when God the Father would providentially speaking raise his hand to slay his own son as his purposes were being worked out. We see God uh, stay the hand of Abraham so that his son is spared. I'm reminded of the time when Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane asked his own father if his hand might be stayed. If the cup he was about to drink might be forgone and yet I'm further reminded that Jesus was also more concerned... That the father's will be done. Even if that was God's will to crush him. And it was. With Jesus, God's hand was not stayed, but the echo is still there. We see Abraham in verse 13, take the substitute ram provided by God and offer him up sacrificially in the place of Isaac. We see the anticipation of the time when once again, God's justice would demand one thing, our death. And his mercy would accept another, a substitute, his son, Jesus. And finally, when you think about the fact that Abraham arrived at the place of sacrifice on the third day, that it was then, after grieving and contemplating the loss of his son for three days, that he, as the writer of Hebrews says, received back this same son on the third day. I cannot help but think of our Lord's resurrection when God the Father received back his own Son. And we received our risen Savior on the third day that we know is Easter morning. Simply put, the gospel message is all over Genesis 22. Indeed, it is only because of the gospel message that we even have a Genesis 22. The death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus are the solid reality of which Genesis 22 is a faint foreshadowing the very real, agonizing, heartbreaking events of Genesis 22 pale in comparison to what God the Father faced as he saw the destruction of his own son. As one writer puts it, Abraham's love for his son is a pale shadow of the Father's love for his son. And the Heavenly Father is saying here, When you see my son ascend to Calvary, don't you dare think that you love him more than I do. And when you see Abraham's hand raised to slay his son, the father saying, don't you think that I'm some passive standby witness watching from a distance what's happening at Calvary. I am the one who is bringing this to be. And I'm doing it because it's the only way that you can be spared. From your sins. I'm not standing back in the shadows. And watching my son suffer. I am the one bringing it about. I am the one. With the knife in my hand. And that knife is there. Because it is absolutely necessary. That a substitutionary sacrifice. Be given for you. If you are going to be. With me forever. And that is what Easter is about. That is what Easter is about. Let's pray. (laughs) Father, for this kindness that we have not deserved, but which has been showered upon us in your love in this sacrifice that we are only beginning to appreciate and understand we can only stand before you and say have mercy on us and thank you for having mercy on us we thank you father That accompanying that mercy and grace and kindness is a promise to bring to fulfillment uh, everything that was initiated there at the cross. The complete reconciliation of all things to you. The restoration of all things. Father, we thank you for that day which truly was the best day ever. And we thank you that we, because of Jesus, we can look forward to the benefits and the promises and the glory that you have for all those that are yours. And Father, I pray that this morning, if there's some that do not get the gospel, who've never gotten the gospel, I pray that today of all days might be the day that they understand your kindness to them in the cross. And we pray this for family and friends and for those we don't even know. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Those are uh, picking up the morning offering will come forward. We'll receive that at this time.